Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you bring your word alive to us by your spirit. We pray that would be the case this morning, that we would hear, understand, and follow you. Pray especially for those being confirmed today, that they would have a sense of your presence and your power, that they may live their lives for Christ in the days and years to come. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now, please be seated. Well, it's a joy to be back with you all and fun to be in a new place. I, the last time I saw you, you were in a storefront, so this is a vast improvement. Um, and, and I love the way the Lord directed you to land in this, this spot. And I'm very excited today for those being confirmed. I wish I could say that at my confirmation when I was 12 had great spiritual meaning for me, but I just was going through the motions. I really didn't know uh, who Jesus was in any deep way until uh, I was a senior in high school. And so I, in one sense, regretted my confirmation. Uh, I wish it had come closer to that experience. But on the other hand, the Lord was after me back in those days too. So I don't, I don't uh, believe that nothing was going on there. Uh, maybe the best way to look at it is I was giving him permission to come after me. Uh, and I think, that's, I think that's what actually happened. So it's a joy to be with you today. As Ben said at the beginning, I'm very aware that this is my last time not only preaching to you, but preaching to anyone as the bishop of the diocese. This coming Saturday, my successor, Alex Farmer, will be consecrated uh, the new bishop. And the moment that that takes place, uh, he steps up and I step back. Um, so I'm excited about him. I'm excited about his gifts and ministry. I'm excited for the direction uh, ahead. Uh, he's been a longtime friend of mine, uh, heading into three decades of friendship. Uh, so this is not an unknown to me and not an unknown to the diocese as well. I'm very grateful, too, for Ben and Carrie and their uh, children. Uh, I love their girls. I, they popped out of the car last night as we were arriving at dinner uh, and ran up to chatter around my feet. And I, and I said to Ben, I think this may be the first fan club I've ever had. <laughs> it was great. Grateful for all the leaders and others who serve in this congregation as well. And I'm especially thankful to Jesus as I've been looking back at my life and looking back at my ministry to see him at every turn where I was paying attention, which I can't say was every turn. And at turns when I wasn't paying attention, he was still at work. Uh, and I, I want to celebrate him. When I was a new Christian, so I became a, a really uh, clear Christian in my senior year uh, in boarding school, and then I went off to university. So I was a, a brand new Christian in terms of self-awareness. Uh, and a student whom I met at a camp, a Christian camp, uh, through the ministry that had reached into my boarding school, uh, was a seminarian uh, at the seminary next to my university. And so we had met at camp back in June. He, we met again, and uh, he took me under his wing to help him with youth ministry. It was his job as a seminarian to take on the youth group of a particular church. And one of the first things he asked me to do was to prepare a talk, or if you will, a sermon. Uh, 
And apart from a little bit of a witness that I'd given back in my prep school, I had never spoken to a group about anything. Um, and I was, frankly, terrified at the idea. Uh, not only did he tell me that I should be uh, speaking or preaching to them, but he gave me the topic. And the topic was the resurrection of Jesus. Now, I believed in the resurrection of Jesus, but he wanted me to make a case for it. And I had no idea how to do that, so he handed me a stack of books and said, start reading these. So I had some time, and I did, and got more prepared, and finally gave that talk. I have very few memories of it, except being totally relieved when it was over. Um, but I think it went all right, at least according to my friend. His name is John Yates. According to John, uh, it went fine. Uh, but I, as I was thinking about today, I thought there might be an, a, something appropriate about having my last sermon be the same topic as my first sermon. So I want to talk about the resurrection today. It's a little bit out of season. We're in the Pentecost season. We've been through the Easter season already. But I believe it's not something you can talk about too much. Um, it's, in one sense, always an appropriate topic. Now, I cannot make a full case for the historical validity of the resurrection this morning. And in some sense, please remember that whenever you're making a historical case, it's not the same as a scientific proof. In science, you can go back and repeat the experiment over and over again, then you know, yes, this is definitely what's going on. Historical proof is different. It's always on the basis of written accounts and eyewitness reports. Obviously, since the invention of cameras, we have uh, other ways to verify things. But up until then, it was totally written accounts and eyewitness reports. But having said that, you can make a strong historical case that Jesus was indeed uh, raised from the dead and that there are key consequences of that resurrection for our lives as disciples. And I just want to talk about a little bit of a case and then one consequence of the resurrection of Jesus. Obviously, I can't do justice to either. The first thing I would point out when it comes to the resurrection is that when Jesus died, not one of his followers was expecting the resurrection. Not one. Uh, we heard the story of the women going to the tomb today, and if you've got a Bible handy, turn to Mark chapter 16. If not, uh, I'll try to speak clearly enough that you'll know what we're saying. But look at Mark 16. They're heading there to prepare his body for the next step of burial. These are women who were very close to Jesus, who'd been around as much as we can tell, probably almost as much as the 12 apostles themselves. But they weren't expecting it. They were expecting to prepare a body. None of his disciples were expecting it, despite the fact that Jesus had been predicting that he'd be raised, and despite the fact that Jesus had performed three resurrections. It's not like they'd never seen somebody dead and come back to life. But when it came to him, I think they felt it was an impossibility that the Messiah would ever die. No anticipation at all on the part of the disciples. 
Remember the days before COVID, whenever there was a new iPhone that was coming out, you would see people lining up overnight sometimes, or at least crack of dawn, to be in line, to be the first ones to get into the store, because they were anticipating the release of the new iPhone. But we don't see anything like that. I mean, look, if you'd been expecting the resurrection, wouldn't you have spent a night or two at the tomb? I mean, you wouldn't have wanted to miss it, right? But none of them were there. But then they saw him. Then they saw the resurrected Jesus. And they became those who proclaimed the death and the rising from the dead of Jesus, the resurrection. And please note, according to scriptures, that there were just not a handful of witnesses. There were hundreds of witnesses uh, to seeing Jesus back from the dead. Now, what I want to focus on this morning is just one person, namely Peter. Uh, In some sense, his right-hand man, certainly uh, one of his key followers. And something interesting takes place when you look at Mark 16. Uh, There's an angel, a young man, an angel, speaking to the women who are there. They're very surprised because they get there and there's no body. And they were there to further prepare the body for Uh, for burial. In Mark 16.6, the angel says, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Now, there are two words in Mark's account that don't appear in any of the other three Gospels. The two additional words, and Peter. Go tell the disciples, and Peter. Now we know from history that Mark's gospel was based on the teaching, later teaching of Peter. Why does it have those two words? Well, first of all, I believe the angel said them, but why does uh, Mark bother recording them? Because at this point, Peter would not have considered himself a disciple. If they say, just go tell the disciples, Peter would have counted himself out. Because you have to understand, in the Jewish culture of Jesus' time, the worst thing a disciple could do would be to betray and deny his master. And Peter had done it three times in a matter of minutes, if you'll remember. He was a traitor. It's a strong word, I know, but that's what he was from the perspective of the culture and undoubtedly from his own perspective. He had betrayed Jesus. He denied Jesus to save his own skin. Often people become traitors because they're trying to preserve their own lives. But something changes for Peter. Well, first of all, he encounters the risen Jesus. We have several uh, situations where we see Peter encountering him along with other disciples. We're told by Paul that there was a one-time visit with Peter uh, early on that we don't see. But the fact that he saw Jesus isn't enough to explain the fact that Peter went from this denier to this proclaimer of the gospel. Something else happened. And the fact is that Peter needed restoration with Jesus because of the betrayal. 
Jesus gives Peter three calls to recommit to serving him to replace the three denials. You remember those in John's Gospel. He says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, I, I love you, or you know that I love you. And then Jesus says, feed my sheep. What's going on there? Well, it's three times, matching the three denials. The words are slightly different. I won't get into that. But the bottom line is Jesus is reinstating him as a disciple to not only follow Jesus himself, but to care for others who are following Jesus. It's a dramatic moment as a traitor is turned into a shepherd of the flock. I was talking to the vestry and spouses and uh, clergy and spouses last night for dinner, a wonderful dinner, and encouraged them to get to Israel uh, if they haven't been. And I'd encourage all of you to get there. And this is a plug. Marsha and I are leading a trip in February, probably our last one. We've led over 30. Over 30. So you're all welcome. But in any case, there's a statue by the Sea of Galilee that's quite dramatic in the area where Peter would have been reinstated, reinstalled by Jesus. And it's a, Jesus is standing and has his hand of blessing, and Peter is kneeling, uh, uh, and the hand is over Peter's head, not touching it, but it just implying this incredible blessing. At the same time, Jesus is handing a, a shepherd's staff or a shepherd's crook as a sign of uh, Peter being a new uh, a shepherd again. Very powerful. This kneeling, plaintive Peter and this blessing, kind, and empowering Jesus. Now, before I go further, are we not like Peter? Disciple one minute, a traitor the next. And we're in that cycle over and over again. We follow him, then we follow ourselves. We follow him, we follow ourselves. The fact is that Jesus is constantly reconciling us back to him. How does he do it? By the cross. By having died for us, having taken care of covering over our sins, having taken his righteousness and putting it on our unrighteousness. The cross is verified by the resurrection. If Jesus had not been raised, the cross would have meant nothing. It all comes out of Jesus' love and mercy. One man wrote this, Charles Rigma wrote, it is a miracle that in the searching light of God's holiness, we are not only exposed, but also loved and forgiven. God knows everything that's going on in your hearts, every thought you've ever had, and instead of pushing you away, he forgives and loves. We saw that through the cross, but, we but the cross is verified by the resurrection. When I have doubts, I don't think back to my encounter with Jesus, as real as that was in boarding school. Why? I don't want to deny it. Maybe you've had powerful encounters with the Lord as well. But my problem is that I can always find a reason to question it. If you're like me, you look at, well, it could have been this, or it could have been that, or maybe I was just thinking this. I think Jesus is in the midst of it. But I think it's more helpful to me and perhaps more helpful to you to go back and consider the case for the resurrection. 
consider why would we believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. I find all the other possible explanations of what happened to be insufficient. The facts that match are that Jesus was so real to the lives of his disciples that they were changed forever because they encountered him. So do you know the case for the resurrection? If not, learn it. It helps give confidence on the days of doubts. The resurrection is the second greatest miracle. I would argue that the first grand miracle, as C.S. Lewis calls it, is the incarnation, that God became flesh. And there's a logic to the fact that if God can become flesh, that person should be able to overcome death. If Jesus is the author of life, he could certainly beat out death. But in a way, that's thinking backwards, because if it weren't for the resurrection, we'd never understand that Jesus was God in the flesh. We would never understand that he had the power over death. So the resurrection validates the grand miracle of Jesus becoming man. Now, there are many good books on the case of the resurrection. Most recently, I've been reading one by Timothy Keller, which I strongly recommend. It's not just about the resurrection. It's also what does it mean for us? How do we live it out? It's entitled Hope in Times of Fear. Boy, is that a good title for these days. Hope in Times of Fear by Timothy Keller arguing carefully, thoughtfully for the resurrection. A great book for a moment in our history where sometimes this feels like everything's falling apart. So John Yates challenged me to study the case for the resurrection, and I challenge each one of you, especially those being confirmed today, to study that case. It will help you on the days where you have doubts. We have a deep, but let me share a consequence of believing in the resurrection. We, because of the resurrection of Jesus, have a deep hope. It is a long-term hope, and it is an immediate hope. We are able to be radically hopeful people. Peter was changed from a hopeless failure to a proclaimer of hope. Listen to these words from Peter's first letter in the first chapter. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us, and please hear in that us, Peter's thinking, me. He caused me, of all people. He's caused us, you and me, to be born again to a living hope. How did that, how is that made possible? He says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Because Jesus was raised, we can be raised. Because Jesus died for us, his mercy will be extended to us. And it's interesting, he says, to a living hope. We're born again to a living hope, a hope that cannot die. We're holding on to a living hope of having eternal life, a life that death cannot destroy. So do you really believe this in your heart of hearts? And, and beyond that, do you see life through that prism? through that lens. People can live their whole lives in fear of death. The writer of Hebrews, I'm using the message version, which is kind of a translation slash commentary, put, puts things this way. I really like it. Since the children are made of flesh and blood, it's logical that the Savior took on flesh and blood in order to rescue them by his death. 
by embracing death, taking it into himself, Jesus destroyed the devil's hold on death and freed all who cower through life, scared to death of death. That's a great phrase. We are people, if it weren't for the gospel, we'd be scared to death of death. And we're surrounded by people who are scared to death of death. But we have hope because Jesus is risen from the dead. He's conquered death. He's conquered not death not only for himself, but for all of us who trust in him. And heaven, as hard as it is for us to visualize, heaven is more real than here. C.S. Lewis calls life here the shadowlands in comparison to the reality of heaven. It gives us a radical hope of life forever because Jesus has defeated death. We have a hope that the kingdom is already coming. We have the hope that Jesus will return again, and we have the hope that heaven is our long-awaited home, all because of the resurrection. So we should be hopeful people, no matter how difficult things are. And the other piece of that hope is we need to have the hope that Jesus is with us right now. He's alive. It's not just a doctrine or an idea. He's with us. In fact, he's so much with us that he talks about being in us, radically connected to him. He said, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. A week ago, I was reviewing my life, and I was looking back at key moments and key decisions. So many good things that I could not have brought into my life that the Lord brought in. So many hard things that the Lord helped me make it through. Jesus there at every turn. He is alive. He is with us. My grandchildren uh, were at table the other night with their parents. And they have a routine as they review each day. And they, the question is, what was the, what was the joy of the day and what was the junk of the day and where was Jesus in the day what was the joy of the day what was the junk and where was Jesus and as you walk through that for each day it's not a bad thing to do individually as well as families you discover that Jesus is always right there even in the midst of the joy and the junk Now, perhaps some of you are like Peter. Maybe something in your past haunts you. You're not sure you could ever be a real disciple again. And you've lost hope for the present and for the future. Or perhaps you know someone who is hopeless without Christ, and you've given up on them ever coming to faith. Just remember Jesus going after Peter and reinstating him who had done the worst thing you could do as a disciple. And if there's someone you've given up hope on, let me share a story. There was an agnostic man with an agnostic Jewish father. This man finally came to faith when he was 84 years old. And I baptized him. It was my father. My brother and I had been praying for him and sharing the gospel with him for 30 years before he was baptized. Don't give up on anybody. If the Lord can get you, he can get anybody. 
Our hope rests on the resurrection of Jesus. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. In other words, our faith means nothing. And you are still in your sins. We are not forgiven if he was not raised. The cross meant nothing. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, if Christ hasn't been raised, have perished. There's no hope of life after death. But then he goes on to say, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, the first part of the resurrection harvest. So I have a word for you, a good shepherd. It was interesting last night as we were gathered together at dinner, your leaders and clergy and spouses, I simply asked them, tell me a little bit of your spiritual uh, histories. Here's what was interesting. Every one of them, to some degree, had been part of a church, usually as a child, had fallen away from church, and then the Lord brought them back. And that's including your two clergy, I might add. Why is that important? Well, it's the same pattern that we saw with Peter and Jesus. Peter had fallen away. He'd really blown it. He really couldn't have felt like he was a disciple anymore. And nevertheless, Jesus came and met with him and brought him in. But that has implications for you as a congregation. If that's the standard story here, it may not be your story, but if that's the standard story, how can you be a church that's looking for people who are astray, who have strayed away like sheep, and the Lord wants to bring them back? How could that influence the people you invite? How could that influence the way you love them when they get here? How could it influence the way you uh, care for them as they're beginning to find their way to Christ? Jesus is continually bringing strays home, turning traitors and disciples, just as Jesus did with Peter. So confirmance, a word to you today. You're committing yourselves to the risen Jesus, the right here with us now Jesus, the Jesus who is constantly forgiving you, who is ruling over every moment in your history, and the Jesus who gives us hope not just a vague hope of heaven, but he's our hope. The, the reality of knowing him now and forever. So my last words to you, and what may be my last sermon, uh, certainly as bishop of the diocese, is never, ever forget that Jesus is risen. He is your hope. Hope for true life right now. Hope for life forever. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Lord Jesus, I pray you would instill that hope in us, that your resurrection was real, that you came back, that you reached your disciples, that we have reason to understand that their lives could not have been changed unless you'd come back. And we pray that we would have a sense of your risen presence with us and your good purposes for us. And in the darkest of moments, the fact that you were right there. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.